So I'd like to welcome you to this event. Um, I'm uh, Dr. Jenny Cooper, the Research Fellow at the Center for the Study of Human Rights. Um, this event is hosted by the Center for the Study of Human Rights at LSE. And um, we welcome comments uh, via Twitter, if you're a Twitter user, hashtag LSEUN. I think it's on, on that slide. Um, please turn your phones and other devices to silent because we're recording this event. Um, we're going to have um, Leila Zarugi speaking for about half an hour, 40 minutes, and then we'll have time for questions. So we welcome questions and comments. Um, we're going to finish by 8 o'clock, if not before. So, first of all, I, I just want to introduce the topic, and then I will introduce our very distinguished speaker. The topic, um, we're talking about the new um, guidance notes that have been issued on Security Council Resolution 1998, which addresses attacks on schools and hospitals, and it aims to prevent these in armed conflict as much as possible. Um, the issue, of course, has been in the news a lot lately in relation to schools concerning the girls who were abducted in Nigeria recently. So that's a very dramatic example of, of some of the kind of things that, that will be talked about tonight. We're uh, going to especially focus on the guidance note, which was just issued a few weeks ago, by the um, Office of the uh, Secretary General um, Special Representative on Children in Armed Conflict, who is our speaker. And um, this was issued together with UNICEF and UNESCO and the World Health Organization. Um, there's a copy here if anybody wants to have a look at it after the um, event. But you can also download it online, and I really recommend that you do that because it's a very fascinating example of how the UN is trying to put theory into practice. And, and the aim of this is to provide practical guidance for UN and NGO people on the ground about how to implement this very important resolution. It's one of a number of resolutions that um, the UN Security Council has recently adopted in the last kind of decade concerning children in armed conflict. Um, so our speaker will look at the guidance note, she'll look at the resolution itself and also talk more widely about her mandate and some other work that she's involved in. So I'd like to introduce now our speaker who um, is the special representative for the Secretary General on Children in Armed Conflict. It's a very great pleasure to meet her and to hear her speak. Um, I had the privilege of being at the very first day of discussion of the Committee on the Rights of the Child in 1992, which was on children in armed conflict, and it started the process, which has ended up resulting in the appointment of this particular role. And I also met the two predecessors in this role, so great pleasure. Um, Ms. Sarugi was appointed in September 2011, 12. 
2012, and um, acts as an independent advocate concerning children in armed conflict within the UN system. Um, before this appointment, from 2008, she was deputy head of the UN mission in the Congo, D Democratic Republic of the Congo, and um, from 2001 to 2008, um, she participated in the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, including serving as its chairperson. And before that, Ms. Zarugi was working as a lawyer in Algeria, including in the judiciary. So she's had a wide experience, obviously, internationally and domestically um, in law. She's an expert in human rights, the administration of justice and has had her very distinguished career mostly focusing on the rule of law issues and protection of the vulnerable, including women and children. So it's a great pleasure indeed to, to welcome you, and we look forward to hearing what you have to say. I don't know if you want to sit here or speak at no. the thing. That's fine. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you for uh, being here. I would like to start by thanking you for inviting me. I'm really honored to be uh, in this uh, uh, distinguished and impressive, as you know, school, the, your, the London uh, Schools of Economics. And for me, it's just something that reminds us that every child everywhere in the world have the right to education, but also have the right to health. And every child, we have, every child have also the fundamental right to be protected against violence. And I think that all of us here sitting maybe think or take these rights as granted, but when war strikes, these rights are compromised and often no longer guaranteed. War disrupts the lives of millions of children and their families around the world. Right now, in more than 20 countries, 20 conflict situations at least that are on the agenda, children are recruited by government forces, by non-state armed groups. They are killed, they are maimed, they are subject to sexual violence, they are abducted from their homes. They are also, their schools and hospitals are attacked, they are looted, and uh, the, they are deprived from the basic and fundamental right to education, to life-saving assistance. During my visit in, in country affected by conflict, I can see the devastation. You can see what happened to children in this context. We always forget when we talk about war, we think that the war is between two belligerents, the war is between adults. The war is affecting the children, affecting the elder, affecting women, and the children in many settings represent the majority of the population. So when the war is inside the country, when it is affecting, the, when it is between belligerents that are inside the same population, you can imagine what happened to children, what happened to women. I saw myself, schools burnt, looted, destroyed. I saw family forced to displacement in, in camps 
you see ch schools that are sheltering families, children that lost everything. This is the reality of war when you go to Syria, when you go to Congo, when you go to South Sudan, when you go to area where we, t we hear about the war. The war is something that destroys everything and the population is under, not only under threat, they lost everything, but at the same time, when you talk to the family, and this is something that I am noticing in many settings, and particularly I saw it in Syria. The population, the family, you talk to them, they are, the first thing they tell you, my children are not going to school. This is a disaster. My children will be illiterate. When the family themselves have a chance to go to school in their, in their uh, childhood, it's very hard for them to accept that their children would be deprived of the right to education. And we forget about it when we talk about the war, that this is something that not only affects the family but affects the nation because if the children don't go to school, next generation, meaning the future of a nation, is compromised. And this is in, in country, when we talk about country like Syria, the majority of the children of Syria for three years are not going to school. This is a reality. This is not something, even when we provide some education, it's not enough to allow these children to get certification, to continue their, their education. So this is something that you can see that will impact the future, that the sustainability of the peace is, is something that is compromised because we are not ensuring the minimum, the fundamental right. When children, when the right of health, when the hospitals, when the, the center that deliver a minimum of uh, health care are attacked, are looted, are transformed in uh, barracks, a center for torture, for uh, 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 ill treatment, then that's also mean that not only children don't go to school, but their health care, the basic is compromised, and that's mean also that you come back to diseases that are defeated, that come back, polio, you see uh, uh, new diseases in this, in this setting. So this is the reality that we see on the ground when we talk about war. The war is not between two belligerents outside of the city, it's in the city, it's in the school, it's in the hospital, and the people are facing this where both belligerents are uh, uh, using, uh, because these are two institutions that are in the middle of the fighting. You can ask yourself why. Because everyone would like to control what is happening in the school. The education is also a tool to impose or to uh, uh, spread uh, an ideology. So that's why school is attacked. It's attacked because it's perceived or it's uh, 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 seen as a place where the opponent are uh, teaching their ideology and they, their, their uh, uh, way of handling the society. The other would like either to change, to control, and then the people that are in school, children, teachers are affected and are killed and are maimed and are uh, abused because they are seen as part of 
the enemy or they are teaching what the enemy, uh, uh, what we don't want to, to be. For example, you know what is happening in what happened to Malala Yousafzai. As, as a girl that stand for the right to education, attacked. Why? Because we consider that school is providing an education that is not ours. We would like to do something else. This is a Western education, or ch- girls don't have the right to go to education. So these are the kind of things that you are facing. So you have extremists, for example, in Mali. What happened in Mali? The extremists came and decided to interfere in the program and in the curricula because they would like to change uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the education provided and, for example, separate girls. I, I was, for example, in Gaziantep when I was visiting Syria, neighboring country, and even those who are providing education from NGO side, they were forced to wear the veil, they were forced to uh, separate girls and boys, uh, for example, some, some uh, programs are not allowed to be teached, like music, like uh, drawing, etc. So this is why schools is something that we would like to control. We would like to make sure that what is going on in school is serving our, our, uh, uh, our uh, purpose. The other side, uh, the, the, the hospital are in the same in the heart also of the fight. Why? Because, first of all, this is very limited services in war, and everyone would like to control uh, the, the minimum of service in, 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 in uh, healthcare. Uh, doctors are uh, very uh, rare in, in the context of war. They flee, they are not there. Uh, medica- medication is very limited, so everyone, the two opponents, first of all, would like to ensure that whatever uh, services is there is for them. Uh, they would like to prevent the other side to not access the minimum of, edu- uh, of health care, and they also target those who maybe provide health care to the other side. So that's why these two institutions, while they are protected by uh, international humanitarian law, and while they are considered as as a, 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 a protected uh, uh, institution, in reality, on the ground, when you have the fighting and the war, they are the one targeted. Another uh, aspect I think that maybe we, we forget about is the military use. The military use of schools particularly, but also hospital, is a problem that change, that put children at risk, that transform uh, uh, facilities, uh, the, the civilian character of facility, to a military target. And schools that are, are used as barracks, they are used as uh, uh, temporary shelters, but they are also used as torture centers, as detention center, they are used to recruit children, and they become uh, a, a threat for those who maybe are interested to go there. And that's why many of the families stop sending their children to to the to the, to the schools that maybe part of them are used, or uh, 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 from time to time uh, troops come and use schools or use hospital, or they are permanently sitting in putting 
the, the threat as daily, and we know, for example, that that uh, the, when when you are using these schools as, for example, sniper center, as area where you are targeting the other side, then the other side is legitimate. You become a legitimate target. So because of all this, because of what we are seeing for years, we are seeing that schools and hospitals are not only that they are losing their, uh, uh, their uh, uh, role and they are attacked and targeted, the international community, with a lot of work done by those who are on the ground, those who are reporting and documenting what is happening, start uh, 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 being interested in addressing this issue. And I think that uh, when we talk about my mandate, uh, you said that you, 1992, that's 1992 we started saying we have to address this issue. And I think in 1994, then the, the General Assembly decided to uh, 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 ask for a study that was conducted by Grassa Michel to have the impact, the, the, affair, the impact of war on, on, on children. So it's not so far, it's very, very recent, it's, less, it's 20 years that the international community consider that children are affected by war in such a terrible way that we have to think how we can address this. And from there, I think the most important, the creation of the mandate in 1996, uh, and the most important is 1999, I think, when the Security Council decided that this is an issue that affects peace and security, and that the, the Secretary General have to report to the Security Council uh, on the uh, violation that affects the right of children. And I would like maybe just to say that the most important with the mandate that is under the, sec the, the Security Council is that the Security Council have tools and capacity to compel and also to take action and to impose sanction. That's why it is important. And since 1999, I think, we worked on the violation that, that uh, affect the mandate and the violation are maybe, I don't know if you are aware about, we have six violations that were identified as the one affecting the most children. And these six violations are recruitment and use of children, maiming and killing, sexual violence, uh, attacks on schools and hospitals, uh, denial of humanitarian access, abduction, and we cover also detention of children associated with armed groups or armed forces. So these, this is, uh, these are the violations that we cover. Four of them trigger for listing, which means that the Security Council decides to identify the perpetrators and to put them on the list that is attached to the report, the annual report of the Secretary General that go to the Security Council. In 2009, in fact, this process started. 2001, this process started. 2001, with the resolution uh, on, um, on listing the, those who recruit and use children. And we stayed till 2009 to have two more trigger for listing, sexual violence and maiming and killing. 
the attacks on schools is just three years ago. 1999 is, was adopted in 2011. Mm -hmm. And this is our subject that in, this is uh, the latest uh, resolution adopted by the Security Council to uh, uh, list parties, government forces and non-government uh, non-state actors that attacks schools, hospitals, but also uh, protected personnel, threat or attack protected personnel of the two institutions. So this is, in my opinion, extremely important because this would allow the Security Council come to the listing after years of reporting. Because when this mandate have uh, uh, the, the, the tool to report on the violation for, for example, uh, uh, or since 1999 when we start reporting to the Security Council and the work done years by years to have um, the listing, the, the mechanism of monitoring and reporting on the violation that affect children. The monitoring and reporting mechanism is absolutely an important tool because it's allow us to document the violation, to identify the perpetrator, and to uh, 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 put the pressure on those who can make a difference, either on the ground or in the Security Council. Uh, in every conflict, you have pa parties that are fighting, you have those who support one or another, you have the role of the Security Council, you have partner of the government, so all these people can make a difference when you have the, the documentation. And the documentation is extremely important, not only because it allows us to report to the Security Council and to push for action, but also because it's the only tool in many settings where, where the, the lawlessness is generalized, where justice is not functioning, where the victims are left alone without any uh, response and sometimes uh, even feel the guilt, like for sexual violence, for example. The victim feel they, they are responsible what is happening. So I think the documentation and the monitoring of the reporting is important, but it's not enough if we don't have other tools that allow us to put the pressure. And that's why the listing of party is extremely important because you will then people are put on the list. We call it list of shame. I would say list of call to action. And we need with this listing to put uh, the pressure on, on the party that are uh, violating the right of the children. Since, 19, since 2011, I mean three years, we have already 10 parties that are listed for attacks on schools and hospitals. Mm -hmm. These 10 parties are in Dia Congo, in Syria, in, uh, uh, um, I think in, in Congo, in Syria, in Afghanistan, and in Iraq. So we have uh, 10 parties, and this, is in, this year we will have more in the report that will be out in, in, in uh, June. And we, uh, if I compare with, uh, with, for example, what happened with the uh, recruitment and use of children. Recruitment and use of children, we start the listing in 2001. Today, we have uh, uh, eight governments that are listed for recruitment and use. Mm -hmm. 
we launched the campaign to end recruitment and use this year in March because we have eight governments out of 194 governments. We have eight that are listed. Seven of them already signed an action plan with the United Nations because the Security Council uh, uh, provide us, as I said, with the monitoring and reporting mechanism on the ground to document their violation, and then the listing, and it, uh, the listing means that you will not get out of the list unless you sign an action plan with the United Nations to not only end the violation, but also to prevent it, which means a set of actions that are identified in every country. What is lacking? Why we have the violation? How we can end it? How we can uh, uh, prevent the violation? And this now, when you see the, action, the, the, the recruitment and news, seven out, out of eight already signed, and the, the latest is Sudan. We are working with them. We have already a draft, and we are in the process of finalizing to make sure that every government all over the world, and I, I noted, I saw it, for example, when we launched the, 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 the dialogue on, on, on the campaign, when they, we launched the campaign on, in March in, 2000, in 2014, this year, the eight government came to the meeting, and all of them support the campaign, and they are asking for support. So it's, it means that we achieve at least a result with regard to attacks on, uh, with regard to uh, the, uh, uh, recruitment and use that government agree that this is a problem, that they would like to tackle it and they would like to be supported and there is no question, it's not your business, I can recruit children. So we would like to do the same for sexual violence, we would like to do the same with attacks on schools and hospitals, with sexual violence, we have already an action plan with the Congo, and we would like to move forward with other parties. So this, these are tools that allow us to legitimize our activity, to ensure that on the ground, those who can make a difference, because they are the one who have the responsibility to protect their own population, and to prevent the violation and to help accountable those who are committing the violation. It is, it is important because with, with, the, the, uh, with the adherence of uh, the, the, the parties that are concerned, uh, particularly governments, then you have the tools on the ground, you have the, 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 the legal framework, and you can move forward. We have also the non-state actors. And they are the many, the majority on our list. And we are working also with some of them, and some already signed action plan, although we are trying to see what kind, how we can divide these groups. Some are terrorist groups, some are extremists, some are part, party with political agenda, how we can use our tools also to, uh, 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 in the political process, in the mediation, in the peace agreement, uh, how we can include the issue of children, the issue of attacks on schools, to legitimize or delegitimize parties that are violating this right, and to explain that you cannot violate the right of children and be uh, respected parties 
that the UN can engage with you, that the international community engage with you, you have to stop the violation. You have to show your commitment to that. And this is just, it's not just for the children. We owe it for our children, for ourselves. But it is the only way that you sustain the peace. The examples that we have, we have everywhere, that if you don't build the peace with those who will be the future of the nation, you cannot sustain it. If you ignore what is happening to the children, that will be tomorrow the leader of the country. If you ignore the majority of the population, and I always say to those who are negotiating peace, if you ignore the majority of the population, and in many settings, the under 18 are more than 50% in conflict area. So if you ignore these people, you cannot build the peace. You cannot ensure that this peace is sustainable. You cannot ensure the peace is sustainable and children are prevented from their school, from going to school and from... Uh, so what we are trying to do is not only us, because we are part of the system, and we work with UNICEF. Uh, for example, our, our guidance note, you see, uh, it was uh, adopted as a tool uh, for those who are working on the ground. The NGOs, the UN, which means UNICEF, which means uh, peacekeepers, uh, child protection actors they, that are on the ground, to explain to them what we mean by attack on schools, what we mean by, uh, uh, killing, by uh, 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 military use, how they can advocate with, with those who are committing the violation, with those who can stop the violation or prevent it, and the, this, the, for me, this is something that is absolutely needed because I was in the field working and seeing how important that you have the tool that allow you to engage with, with the parties to the conflict, to explain to them what they, what they can do, what they are not allowed to do, and the risk they are taking, and uh, 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 ensure that you engage and you can work with them and you can build the trust and you can change because sometimes it's also lack of awareness. When we talk about school, why schools are occupied in many settings? Because you go in a village and the only building standing is the school. And the, the parties that are fighting, they don't have barracks. So they, 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 the first thing they do, they go and they occupy the school. And the most important in this is sometimes the community itself that open the school because if it is in summer, the school is closed. So they open the school for those to protect them. And then it's very hard to get them out. So that's, you have some reality on the ground that you need to work on to ensure that the school is not, you, 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 I remember I was fighting with, with the troops that said, we are here to protect the community. The community asked us to sit in the school. And I said, you cannot sit in the school. This is a high price for the community that you sit in the school and prevents children to go to school. So these are things that you need these kind of tools. You need that people know what is prohibited what is not allowed, how you can change, how you can propose alternative sometimes to stop the violation. And if people are 
behaving in good, in bad faith, and continue the violation because it's a tactic of war. Because it's not only we don't also uh, do things just because we don't know. Sometimes we know. We do it in purpose. We attack the population. We threaten them. We terrorize them because we would like them to leave. Because we would like to grab land. We would like to change the the composition of uh, of, uh, uh, of the community. So there is, the the tactic of war is also there. But we need to ensure that those who may change their behavior, they have, they, they can do it. So, the, would like also to say something maybe important is about it's not the only initiative. This is our initiative uh, with our partners, but other partners that are working with us also. The Secretary General, for example. Uh, uh, issue, you know, the Initiative Secretary General of Education uh, uh, for All when in emergency situation. You know that in in uh, half of the children that are out of school, about 28.5 million are children in area of conflict. So it's it's really high price. Half of the children that are out of school are in emergency and in conflict situation. Many of these children are in, in, in area where they are the majority of the population, where it's very hard to imagine a future for this nation without uh, uh, reversing this context and allowing children to access school, to access healthcare. Uh, another initiative maybe you are aware of is the Lucent Guidance. Mm -hmm. And the Lucent Guidance is also an initiative uh, from that uh, was uh, ad adopted by interested member states, NGOs, uh, uh, and partners working to facilitate to government uh, uh, to restrict the military use of schools. And to restrict it, you need also legal framework. You need guidance to, because as you know, the military use of school is not prohibited according to international humanitarian law. But it is going for that when you see, for example, this initiative, the, guide, the, the, the Lucent Guidance is, of course, initiative from NGOs and some government state parties. But at the same time, you have a resolution, the, the latest resolution of the Security Council, resolution 2143 that uh, on, on our mandate adopted this year, in March this year. It was, it's very, this resolution may make it more clear that first of all, the concern that the Security Council have with regard to uh, 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 military use of school that put at risk children that restricts the right to education and health. Uh, these are a new, it's a new language. It's strengthening the language that in the past, in Resolution 1998, was only asking the, security, the Secretary General to continue to report on the military use. Mm -hmm. In 2014, the Security Council made it clear that this is an issue of concern, this affects the right to education, and this should be restricted and invite government to take, to restrict the military use and to uh, uh, have other alternatives. So we are seeing the international community 
uh, realizing how important to protect the right to education because also of the advocacy, because all this is an this initiative. Let the, the Security Council understand that it's not only humanitarian law, it's also human rights law. The right to education is extremely important. And in many of these countries, the government have not covered their obligation to ensure this right to everyone. So we are with limited portion of children that have access. We cannot limit further this very small access to uh, uh, sometimes, as I said, very limited uh, portion of the population that have access to education. So maybe what, what, why I am here, why I'm talking to you. I'm here, I'm talking to you because I think that we cannot do these things only ourselves in New York sitting now with the Security Council and some member state and some NGO working. We think that this is an issue that need to be advocated by everyone. And I think that all of you, can, every one of us, and you uh, as future also leader, as a researcher, as an uh, academician, you, you can help in, uh, le in uh, moving forward this issue and in sensitizing, in uh, uh, delegitimizing this kind of violation not acceptable. We don't accept it. You cannot sit at the table if you continue to do that. You cannot be the leader of your future. You cannot pretend that you are defending a legitimate uh, 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 political agenda if you are preventing children from going to school, if you are attacking uh, uh, hospitals, if you are uh, killing a teacher in front of their student. That's what is happening. Uh, I was in Syria and I was informed that teachers were killed, executed in front of their student in the room because they are seen by one or the other party that uh, uh, as, as an enemy or are teaching uh, uh, ideology that is not the one one of the party is trying to push forward. The bombardment of schools, the shelling, the suicide bomb that uh, uh, targets students the day of their of their exam in, in many settings. So this is a reality that we, we need you as, as partner, as member of the modern society to say it's not anymore acceptable. And we have to work together to ensure that every child has the right to education, every child has the right to access healthcare. And it's not because you are fighting and even if your fight is legitimate, that you can do what you want. It's not acceptable, and we have to work all together to make it very clear to everyone. Security Council will listen when it becomes something that all, all of us is considering it as unacceptable. And international norms move forward, and what is today maybe is not considered as a violation of international humanitarian law will become a violation if we move on this. So that's, I think, what uh, I would like to convey to you. I hope that this document will be used uh, by uh, those who are on the ground. We would like to have it also in French and in Arabic to make sure that those who are working in 
uh, in uh, uh, Arab-speaking country or French-speaking country can use it also. It will be very soon uh, uh, in, um, uh, coming out. So um, I hope that it was useful for you to hear me today. So now we have time for questions and answer, and um, I'm going to take a couple of questions at a time. Um, please try and keep your questions short to the point. Uh, no speeches, please. Um, and do wait for the microphone. There is a roving microphone that will go around. Um, I will repeat the questions, just paraphrase to make sure that everyone heard them. And um, throwing the floor open now to, to any questions that anyone may have. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the rights protection at the beginning of the talk. Sorry, I forgot to say, if you could just give your name and affiliation oh, sorry, for us. Okay. Um, you mentioned the rights protection at the beginning. Do we need to approach protection as a right? that uh, we can we, I, I don't know if I said the protection from violation is a right I mean we need children for children we, we need to say it's 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 their right to be protected as vulnerable group in the society but talking about protection as a right in general I think it's it's it depends uh, uh, in my opinion, the, pr the protection is something that is extremely important in the war. It's humanitarian, but it's also encompass right the, the human rights. So the, the linkage when I was in the field working on both protecting human, the, the human rights that are recognized as right according to the international standards and norms, uh, right to be the right to be uh, 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 to not be tortured, to not be killed uh, unlawfully, to to not be detained arbitrary detention. All these rights that are enshrined in international norms, and then the protection from uh, the consequence of war, the protection of uh, 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 of attacks, protection. For example, uh, if you have. Uh, what is happening in South Sudan today, for example. You have the violation happening inside the society, people that are under the protection of, uh, in, inside, like, like uh, a displaced person, like refugees. Of course they have the right to be protected. But it doesn't mean that we talk about the right of protection. We talk about the protection of the people that are uh, under uh, 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 threat on the attack and it, uh, 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 the humanitarian actors and those who are working on the protection are the ones who uh, 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 implement this but also peacekeepers are the ones who 
can uh, provide the protection for the vulnerable group. The first, the primary responsibility for protection is, of course, the government. Uh, so I, I, I don't know if I respond to your question, but I would like to emphasize the linkage between the rights and the fact that you need, for example, I give you, you are wounded, you are, you are a fighter, and then you are wounded. You are not anymore fighting. You have the right to be protected against violence. So this is uh, the humanitarian law, that when you are not anymore uh, a, a threat, you cannot be uh, uh, killed, for example. You, you have to be protected because you are, you are uh, uh, vulnerable. For the population, the civilian population can, cannot be uh, 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 attacked because we are fighting. We are fighting, we are fighting with the belligerent, there is limitation to what we can do even when we are at war, and those who are, those who are civilian, those who are not anymore fighting, they have the right to be protected and children are part of them. Should we take another question or two? Um, there are th actually three questions. Can we take all three? Um, there was a fourth one that just came up, but we'll do that afterwards if we just take the first three. So somebody at the back. Uh, hi, I'm Joe. I, I don't know anything new. Um, I was wondering, you were talking about the effects um, and the composite effect um, being listed on the European call to, call to action can have on state groups. And you did mention that it was harder to effect change in non-governmental non groups. But I was wondering how your approach differs and whether you had... Non-state actors, you have to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. and whether you had what kind of levels of success you had with so there were two questions at the front here. Just building onto that question, just going back to the eight governments that you said were on the listing, I want to know what mechanisms are there in place, if any, regarding sanctions for non-compliance with the mandates that you set out. Uh, and the Greek Foundation Association, and many good questions have been asked. Uh, and um, I want to make it a little more specific. One of the most outrageous and long-standing examples of violations against children has been the activities of the so-called Lord's Resistance Army, originally in northern Uganda, spreading into the Congo and southern Sudan. It is utterly grotesque. There's not like indeed nothing has been done about it. I'd like to know your comments about this. Does the Security Council have any to have try to do something? Of course it can't without government involvement, who knows better than I. But please address specifically the North Resistance Army. It's a scourge. So those three questions, one was concerning the effect of listing of non-state non actors, and um, the eight governments on the list and the sanctions for non-compliance, mm -hmm. and then a question about the Lord's Resistance Army activities. Yeah, so with regard to non-state actors, um, we have our, 
out of the 55 uh, parties that are listed, uh, as I said, nine, eight government for uh, recruitment, another government for, for other violations, nine, and 46 are non-state actors, which means they are the majority of those who are on our list. But um, at the same time, we sign uh, the majority of the action plan that were signed were signed also with non-state actors. So we have non-state actors that engage with the United Nations, that uh, uh, sign action plan and release children from their rank, for example, with regard to recruitment, because the majority are listed for recruitment, but some also sexual violence, some maiming or killing. Uh, what we are uh, trying to do with non-state actors is to, first of all, they are not a homogeneous group. So you have to identify how you engage. Some have a political agenda. It's easy to put pressure on them, to engage with them, because these are uh, parties that care about their image and care about the engagement with the international community because they would like to have support to become uh, a relevant party in the future of, of, their, of their nation and they are open to. So we, we, we have more uh, uh, leverage when it comes to these kind of, of parties. Then you have those who uh, maybe will not listen to you. So you have also to identify the supporters of these parties. The listing allows you to identify them and then you can work through the supporters to see how you can influence their behavior. And then you have also sanction. Some are on the list, the leaders of these groups. I, when I was in Congo, I worked very hard to ensure that some commanders are put on the list of sanction. Then they are prevented from any uh, 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 amnesty. They could not enjoy uh, the impunity. They are not. Uh, 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 they, they they cannot escape bondages. And then you have ICC. If you see, for example, those who were sentenced uh, for recruitment and use of children, they are commanders of non-state actors. Thomas Lubanga, uh, uh, but also uh, uh, even Charles Taylor, Taylor's, he was supporting armed groups, uh, 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 and uh, uh, others that are now in, in the court, uh, uh, still uh, trial pending, and we have also uh, Germain Katanga who was sentenced recently. So these are the tools that exist. The, the sanction, the uh, ICC, but also uh, 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 what could happen in the ground to ensure that justice can also reach some of them and uh, build uh, uh, the criminal justice to ensure that there is a, a response on the ground which is more sustainable. And as I said, uh, uh, delegitimize these people in the political process. Some you cannot do unless you have the military pressure. And that's why also more and more Security Council is providing mandate with robust peacekeeping, with uh, military uh, intervention uh, that allow to
to address these uh, armed groups. This year we are working, we would like to focus, after focusing on the eight governments, we would like this year to focus more, to have a multi-dimension uh, strategy with regard to non-state actors, uh, to ensure that we also, and I believe myself, that in because you see the eight governments, and then you see the majority of non-state actors, they are in this setting. So if you have the legal framework, you have the mandate, you have government on board, then you can also work on them. So that's how I see the engagement with non-state actors. It's, it's something that is not, that is not uh, solved, but uh, we believe that in the future we'll have more more engagement than that, and I would I would uh, certainly talk more next year on how we will engage with those that are the most difficult on the ground. I hope I respond to your question. With regard to the sanction and the aid government, I think that the most important is that we have, first of all, government that recognize that they have a problem. That's why they signed an action plan. Either because they are under pressure, because they realize it's not sustainable, they would like to get rid of this, this image. They are sometimes other government, for example, the, the, the Child Act of the United States is, is used in some countries where they have military support to say you have to end the recruitment uh, to be supported. So sign an action plan with the UN, work on this, otherwise we cannot support you. Uh, it's the same with regard to uh, uh, what happened with Chad, for example, when they decided to, to engage as a, a TCC in Mali. We said, you are listed, you cannot be part of the United Nations peacekeepers unless you are delisted. So they, they engaged, they, were, they have already signed an action plan, but not implemented. So we put a roadmap and we worked with Chad the whole year and they are about to finalize uh, the roadmap. So we use different, and the sanction could be could be something that is used. But I consider that as government signed an action plan, and we have leverage to help improve finalize the the the. I saw it even in Congo, where in the past it was normal to recruit children. It was visible. It was everywhere. They are implementing in good faith the action plan, and they are allowing the UN to uh, screen troops, uh, to put a verification age when it comes to recruitment, to ensure that children are not recruited, and if it happened, they are released. So these are the kind of, uh, I consider the action plan as an opportunity, and uh, we can move uh, in the implementation. I'm not seeing a government that sign an action plan just to sign it and not. Now, with the launch of the campaign, everyone would like to, to be the next on the list to be delisted. And we are seeing it with Myanmar, we are seeing it with the Afghanistan, with the, uh, 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 even in the context of South Sudan, that now we have all this it's a very uh, terrible situation. In the past, they were advancing in the implementation. So we have to ensure that when we have a positive development, to protect them, to prevent uh, this. So I hope that we will not find ourselves pushing for sanction when it comes to this aid government and to see that they are moving in the right direction. 
Thank you. You uh, talk about the Lord Resistance, Resistance Army. I was in Congo in 2008. It was my first year when the, the, the terrible attacks in, during the, during the, the uh, uh, Christmas time happened in Oriental, in Congo. I think that uh, if we, we uh, compare what happened in 2008 to 2009 and what is the, the situation of the, the Lord Resistance Army today, we are very uh, uh, far from the strength and the violence they have at the time. And I think the Security Council took action against, against uh, the uh, Lord Resistance Army. First of all, the, their leadership are all uh, uh, indicted by ICC. We know that. They are indicted by ICC. Uh, the they are indicted by the International Criminal Court. They're indicted, they're yeah, they, they, yes, 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 yes. Yes, I was there, so I can talk about what, what action were taken. I think that it's not, always, it's not always what we would like to see. They are in the bush. They are now, you, first of all, uh, military action specifically targeting the LRA started in DRC before the integrated brigade that is now uh, focusing on other armed groups. Uh, uh, we have a, a regional uh, monitoring and reporting on, on the LRA. We have regional op uh, uh, um, uh, troops that are dedicated with the support of the United States, for example, on the ground. Uh, for the last, la I mean, we are now seeing every year that they are in, in a very uh, um, so almost survival mood. They, they are uh, 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 divided in small groups. They still continue to pose a threat, to attack uh, 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 the, the population, but we have less and less we have more, uh, less and less, uh, uh, as you know, in the past they, they uh, uh, abduct children and they recruit them, they, they, uh, they uh, use them as fighters. They more, even when they abduct children, they release them, they use them only to, uh, as porters for, their, for the, the goods that they, they loot from the, the community. So I think they are more, less, uh, um, not because they change their 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 mind, it's because they cannot afford to do what they can what they were doing in the past because of what of the pressure, the military pressure, the 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 uh, the targeting of their uh, commanders, the the also the the release many children that uh, and even and and even adults that can flee the LRA are secured and are returned in the community in, in, in Uganda. So I think it's not enough because we would like to see this kind of armed groups that just uh, not anymore in any setting. And I agree with you that what this group did to the community in this and still in this setting, not only Congo, but it's Congo, it's South Sudan, it's Uganda, it's Central African Republic, all this, 
and we are, for example, when when the situation uh, in South in Central African Republic uh, 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 was uh, worse, we were very very uh, concerned about maybe the LRA come back and start committing the atrocity they did in the past. So. I understand your frustration, your frustration. My, I am also frustrated, but I think that some have been done for, for them, has been done for the LRA. So, any uh, other questions? There are quite a few. Um, this man, uh, there, I seem to see four, and I also have two questions I'm going to use my privilege as the chair to... So, um, if we could have the three on this side, and then I'll have my question on this question here. Hi. My name is Dan Lee. I'm for your presentation. Um, can you tell us the eight countries that we are using children? My second point is, the Security Council doesn't seem to have um, the fighting teeth because I've been in human rights uh, field for the last 20 plus years. Quite everything that has happened, uh, genocide, ethnic cleansing, all this, it doesn't have the preventive capacity. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not the United States access or we have a problem. Just why now today to end up with this killing school children? What does it do or what can it do with those men and dictatorial states? Who can the political people just persecute them? They are the source of this uh, problem. They're supposed to present the look after the system. Uh, what does it do? I mean, there's a real politics, the strong states are advancing that. The other one was supporting these dictator states. What can, how can we define, in the first place, the role of security council? What does it do? What can it do? That's why I'm really puzzled. I've studied and written five different uh, So what can and what does security council do uh, with the state uh, where the owners is condemned to protect um, or prevent human violations? Thank you. Thank you very much for the presentation. Uh, my name is Johan. I work for the Human Rights Organization and I just came back from South Sudan. <coughs> when I was there, I encountered quite a number of um, very young soldiers, soldiers. And I guess working for the Human Rights Organization, we found it quite difficult to document how many they were, what they were, and what they were up to, both because they were a lot of them large area and it was something to try to ask those questions sometimes. Um, but also we need to do it. So how do you have any suggestions or any ideas on how the international community as such can improve its ability to document these things during ongoing conflict? And my perhaps very flawed understanding of humanitarian law is that 
as civilian objects that are not to be targeted, but is there a, is there a difference in, in the so if I can just summarize quickly those three questions. Um, there was a question about the eight countries that are listed mm -hmm. at the moment in this current campaign, mm -hmm. and a question about what is the actual role of the Security Council, what can it do, in fact. Um, then there was a question about from a humanitarian worker just back from South Sudan, um, how can NGOs better document the use of child soldiers um, mm -hmm. on the ground, and um, a question about the comment that... And the military the use. Military use of yes. schools, yeah. Mm -hmm. So the eight countries that are listed for recruitment and use are uh, the DR Congo, South Sudan, Sudan, Somalia, Chad, Yemen, uh, uh, Myanmar, and uh, Afghanistan. We have another country that are listed because of the wise people who say why the, the, the government of Syria is not listed. They are listed but for attacks on schools and hospitals, maiming and killing, and sexual violence. They are not listed for recruitment because the recruitment is the opposition that is listed. So the campaign uh, is about the eight countries that recruit children that are on the list for recruitment, and these, as I said, five uh, in, uh, in Africa and three in Asia and the Arab world. So we are working with all of them. The seven, uh, seven, as I said, signed an action plan, and Sudan, we are in the process of finalizing, I hope, uh, very soon, uh, uh, the, the draft that is between us and the government. And the latest that was signed is just a few weeks ago in Yemen. I, I was there myself to, to attend the ceremony of signing. Uh, with regard to the Security Council, I, again, I understand the frustration and I myself many times feel the frustration. But at the same time, it's the only mechanism that can take action, that can compel member states that have the tools to uh, use force, to, to utilize sanction, to refer a country that is not party to ICC to the ICC is the Security Council. So it's, it's, it's the only tool that we have as an as a, as a international community that we have to ensure, of course, remember, the Security Council is, 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 is an, an institution of member states that have their interests, that have their uh, 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 priorities, and that's, uh, that many times they are not always uh, united. They are divided. It's the reality, but you have to work with this. You have to to uh, use the opportunities. You have to build the consensus. When I arrived in this mandate, I remember 2012 I arrived, the Security Council was about to adopt the resolution on my mandate. There is nothing really important in the resolution, but I was informed that six members of the Security Council, six out of, of the 15, uh, two uh, uh, permanent members, uh, decided to vote against the resolution. 
So I was, uh, I started trying to convince every one of the six members that this is not the right message that we can send not only to the perpetrators, but also to the victim, that we don't care about what is happening to them. And I succeed to convince them to not vote against, for abstain, to uh, uh, join uh, the group and vote for. And this year uh, we have two resolutions that were adopted by consensus. So you need to work on that. You need to ensure that you, can, you don't have another option. It's frustrating sometimes. That's why it's important to document the violation, to put the pressure on member states that they cannot afford to allow uh, a situation. For example, with, uh, with Central African Republic, we spend a lot of time convincing the Security Council that they have to act. They did. They put three on the sanction list. Bozizé and uh, the chief of, uh, of the, the Antibalaka and the Exeleka. So this is a success. That's how we work. We have no other option. And uh, that we, we do the same with member states. We put them under pressure. We try to convince. We try to compel. That's, that's the work that we have to do. And it's the only way that we can make a difference on the ground. People care about the Security Council because they knew they can reach them, and that's why we have to ensure that they stay united on the most important issues to allow us to move forward, because we have the vote, the veto, we have the, and we could, we, we could be stopped because we, we did not address uh, them in the, in, in, in the way that they, are, they, they respond uni united. Now, with regard to uh, documentation of the violation, uh, uh, documentation, and maybe it's also respond to your question on the early warning, is, I mean, the documentation is there. What is happening in South Sudan, uh, we knew about it. In, in the latest uh, report, because I received the global horizontal note every three months, from the countries where we have parties that are listed. South Sudan is one of them. And the information on the large scale of recruitment of underage by both parties is there. And I was, for example, uh, uh, in, in May, I was in, in, in um, in Addis, and I met with uh, uh, Rick Mashar, and I met also with the representative of, uh, of the government minister of, uh, of uh, information who was there, and I spoke with both, reminding them that they signed an action plan. Not only the government signed, but Rick Mashar was the deputy, the, was the, the, the deputy vice president. So I said, you are both in breach of your, of your uh, uh, engagement with the United Nations. And you are knowing that this is a war crime, you are responsible as leader. So we, and Rick Mashar signed with us an engagement, maybe you are aware of that. So I believe that it is important to strengthen the capacity that is in the ground. It's always the challenge of the monitoring of violation is there in every conflict, specifically when 
the security become very uh, uh, the, the the lack of security is very very high and people cannot access the area that are remote area where the violation are uh, are happening so it's it's a challenge not only for NGOs but also for the United Nations it's a challenge for all those who try to document the violation but we uh, 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 we I consider that the monitoring and reporting mechanism that is in place in South Sudan, and we have a strong uh, team on uh, children armed conflict there, the, the child protection team is strong, uh, we have uh, UNICEF working also on this issue, and you know that the NGOs are part, are uh, welcome in reporting, in the monitoring and reporting mechanism. So I think that uh, it is a big challenge, but we, uh, I am also going to South Sudan at the end of this month, and I will see how I can work, uh, help uh, in uh, strengthening uh, the capacity that are there to ensure that the information that we are receiving is, is as accurate as possible. Uh, with regard to the military use, yes, Schools are considered as uh, uh, civilian facilities that could not be targeted. But if this, if it is militarily used, it loses the civilian character, and it becomes a military target. That's why we consider that, of course, it's. Um, the international humanitarian law uh, put limitation. You cannot use school while children are still in. You cannot partially use uh, military school and then you have children, they become target because you are target. But if you decide to change the uh, 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 use of the facility and transform the facility as as a, 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 a barracks or so then it loses its character of school and we are fighting this because we are saying it's not you government are not covering the needs for education the right to education is is a fundamental right for children it's so important that we, we have to protect the capacity that is, that is in the ground to ensure that the right to education is preserved and military use of schools is, we go for restrict this military use and maybe one day say it's not accepted at all. So that's what I said. So maybe... Um Yes, there was one question here. I have my question. <laughs> um, and I see there are actually three or four other I think questions. she's asking from the beginning. so Right at the back? Yes. Okay, is. so if we could have this one at the front, the one at the back. Oh, you can start at the back. And my questions. And then if we have time for the others, um, we will. So if you could make your questions quite short, please. And my question is about the delisting process. 
because we've heard a lot about how important it is for a country to feel the pressure to be listed. But after the listing, could you elaborate more on what happens after that? Thank you. Hi, um, my name is David, and I'm Victor. Now, I study international development, or I study international development, and one of the key questions that's always bothered me, so to say, is, say, if you look at Syria, there's you have a massive displaced children, and there's an international effort to educate these people, um, these children, but I think one of the biggest problems is, how does one actually get a comprehensive education strategy together that allows effective nationhood over the next couple of years without kind of upsetting social, cultural, constructs. Because the way I perceive there are many good willing NGOs out there and also the United Nations Development Project or program who try to deliver comprehensive education. But I think the question lies what's too much deeper, especially with permanently displaced people. Does one sort of say, um, especially in Syria, would one promote secularism? Would one promote this because I mean education is not just about literacy or learning how to read numbers and maths. It's about do we promote secularism? Do we Shiaism or Sunnism, what do we do? How can we actually kind of convey a sense of unity to these children, even though they're all in, in these kind of camps? So, and I think there should really be a comprehensive strategy to help us, without obviously that's one would say cultural imperialism, because otherwise it ends up in a very um, detrimental situation, possibly. Thank you. So, if I could just ask a few questions and um, we're asked you to make the replies quite brief and we could maybe fit in another question or yeah. two. But So I would be interested to hear your thoughts on the um, global, this sexual violence mm -hmm. summit that is starting um, here tomorrow. Um, the global summit to end sexual violence in conflict will start tomorrow here. Mm. Um, and also that in regards to the campaign to end recruitment of under-18s, um, the UK, uh, where we now are, um, is one of the countries that still recruits children from the age of 16. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what kind of pressure is being brought in mm -hmm. this country. It's voluntary recruitment, it's not forced conscription, but it's still the lowest cons uh, mm -hmm. recruitment age in, in Europe. So mm -hmm. I'm interested in Okay, then, with regard to the delisting process, uh, first of all, I think that uh, according to our own uh, practice, in 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 uh, in the past, and which is first of all, you are you go through the process, you are delisted, and then you stay in the report another year to assess if uh, the the new trends is really something that we consider. There is no risk that you return to the recruiting. So the the delisting. Does, does not mean you go finish. You, you are still, you stay for another year under uh, uh, observation to see how the behavior, how we are going with that. It doesn't mean that after a year we have to close the case. We can if we feel that the situation is still not, uh, 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 we are not confident about it, we can keep uh, 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 the, 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 the situation on, on our list. I can give you an example. Uh, uh, for example, you have Côte d'Ivoire. Côte d'Ivoire, the parties have been listed, delisted. 
but they are still, we are still reporting on Cote d'Ivoire. They are still on our agenda because we are following the situation and we, are, we would like to make sure that if we decide that there is no more conflict in, 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 um, that affect children in, uh, in Cote d'Ivoire, then we will not come back the year after with the crisis. So that's how we do. They are delisted, we continue to follow up, we work with the with the with the with the, the MRM on the ground, and after the MRM is finished, we continue with our partner down the ground working on the situation to ensure it's it's uh, it's finalized finalized. With regard to uh, um, what you said on 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 what education is not it is not neutral. I fully agree with you, and what, what I said about Syria, Syria is a very interesting example, because, why? It's very interesting because children in Syria used to go to school. So we are not delivering some, uh, uh, as we do in some setting, where children are not used to go to school, so we come, we provide some programs, and people are very happy with it. You have all the context of the conflict, the division inside the community, and what will happen to my child when the war finishes and I return to the country. My child will be accepted. Do we have certification? I can't start. It's not just to give me some course. So that's the challenge that when I was there, I saw it from the beginning. The Syrian, even in the camps, they were saying, we would like, we are volunteers to teach our children. We don't want, we were confronted, for example, to the curriculum coming from the government. People are saying, we don't want to teach the, what, the, the propaganda for, for the bath, for example. That is part of the program. But the UN cannot change because you have property uh, right, you cannot change the content of a book and say I will, I will issue it. So myself, I went to NGOs that I know in the Arab world. I went, for example, to to the Arab Human Rights Fund, asking them, "You have program on education. Try to solve this problem. Try to help the people." So I think it's 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 a challenge. We need to discuss with the community to ensure that we will not impose something that is not accepted. At the same time, we don't compromise on the principle that we are defending as United Nations, as uh, a community for, with regard to access to education for girls, with regard to the content of the education. But at the same time, it is important that we take into consideration what the community expects for their children and how we can move while not compromising on, on the principle that our equality, non-discrimination, the right to, uh, to uh, the kind of education that we would like uh, 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 to, to provide to, to, to children, taking into consideration also specificity sometimes uh, and what the population expects for, for their children. It's very difficult. It's not easy, but Syria is putting uh, in front of us many challenges that we did not experience in other conflicts because the refugees 
are middle class and sometimes even upper class and they are themselves educated and they would like to see their children having more than just some courses uh, to help them to be to not be illiterate so it's not it's not the same setting it will be challenging for a while uh, with regard to sexual violence i think as i said sexual violence is part of the six violations that is covered, that are covered by this mandate sexual violence is something that affects children they are vulnerable to sexual violence they are uh, affected not only by rape and other form of sexual violence but also by early marriage by uh, 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 some uh, forced marriage by girls are forced to be wives in the bush sex slave there are mothers uh, um, before time they have to deal they are childing with children i think that this was uh, is something that is in in many conflicts even if for why we thought that is kind of congo issue kind of it's something that is linked to to the conflict where you have lawlessness where you have uh, warlord then uh, you have sexual violence and abuse it's something that is always underreported it's uh, something that we always try to bring it's difficult to to fight uh, because you need the evidence together and to ensure that people that commit rape are uh, 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 held accountable in justice is a big challenge so this summit is not only an opportunity is an unprecedented opportunity that allow all the leaders of the world to understand that this is not acceptable that we talk about it that everyone bring its own uh, uh, perspective to enlighten everyone about what is happening on the ground many people will come we we'll talk about their experience we we'll challenge governments will ask government to take more effective action to help the perpetrator accountable to protect the victim to help the victim to not feel they are guilty because this is the reality on the ground so i think we have an opportunity that allow us to uh, move forward uh, what was already achieved with the security council with all the security council resolution since we started considering this as an issue that affects peace and security that now we have a mandate that deal with sexual violence uh, in conflict that we have also uh, 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 our work in, with regard to children because we continue to report on sexual violence affecting children uh, this is a trigger for listing uh, and we would like to see more justice for the victim protection but also response because the major challenge for the victims of sexual violence is the reintegration and the fight of uh, uh, stigmatization in the community uh, to be uh, uh, reintegrated is not something that is easy you need you need to understand in which uh, setting they are how we can work not only with them but also with them against the perpetrator and with the community to ensure 
that uh, they are uh, uh, not stigmatized and they don't feel that they are victims. So I think it's, it's really something that I'm looking forward to see the outcome mm. and how we can move forward this agenda that is extremely important. With regard to uh, the recruitment uh, for under 18, uh, you, you mentioned the case of UK. I think the, uh, uh, the optional protocol, because there is no consensus mm-hmm. on 18, we have to, to make it very clear that it's not, we don't have a consensus that the recruitment, uh, uh, the age is 18 and age 18 is not accepted. It's not the case yet. The, uh, uh, the African Union, for example, they have their, uh, their uh, the, the charter on the welfare, the right and welfare of child that set 18 as minimum for recruitment. Uh, we hope one day that we will raise this because that's our, our uh, uh, advocacy is to say 18 uh, would be the best uh, uh, but what is uh, agreed and is very clear in the optional protocol um, is that you cannot uh, uh, force the uh, enlist, uh, enlisting children before the age of 18, and you cannot send children to the battlefield mm. to fight before 18. So these are two very clear that if you recruit under 18, you, you are not allowed to send them to the battlefield to use them for any of the activities that in support or as, as fighter, and you cannot, because you put their lives uh, in danger, and you are not allowed also to force recruitment before 18. Uh, we, uh, uh, we hope to see, that's what we do, is and uh, to see some government that ratified mm-hmm. and made a declaration at 17, the majority are, are 18. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a group that ratified setting 17 and another small setting 16. Mm-hmm. We hope to see uh, some coming back to say we are raising the age to 18. We hope to see that. We are working first now to reach the universal ratification. We still have about 40, uh, we have 155 that are ratified. We have still about 40 that did not. Uh, many of them are small island in the Pacific or in, in, uh, in the Caribbean. Uh, I am also uh, seizing this opportunity to say many are part of the Commonwealth. We are asking the Commonwealth community uh, uh, organization to help this small island to have a mechanism that allows them to reach, to ratify without having the burden of the reporting because sometimes they are more reserved because of that. They don't have such a big army. They are not recruiting children. They just consider it's another burden to report when they ratify another mechanism. So if the, the Commonwealth can help in setting something that allow this small island to allow the, us to say we are reaching 
the universal ratification and put more pressure on those who have a problem. That's why they don't want to ratify. Thank you. Um, we have slightly overrun, and before I thank our speaker, I just want to um, to remind you that the Center for the Study of Human Rights is hosting another important event later this week on Thursday. It's um, the 50th anniversary of the Rivonia trial in which Nelson Mandela and others were sentenced uh, to life imprisonment for acts against the apartheid government. And uh, we're hosting a panel discussion on Thursday, um, experts and contemporaries of Mr. Mandela. It should be a very, very exciting and important event. Um, you do need a ticket to attend it, so please look on the LSE website for that. And uh, also, if you want to know about our, our events, then do, again, check the LSE website, the events page, etc. And um, I would very much like to thank our speaker for this inspiring talk about this one of the very few mechanisms in the UN that actually does really try to, to put theory into practice. So thank you very much.